Therapy Chat Podcast, Episode 89. This is the Therapy Chat Podcast with Laura Reagan, LCSWC. The information shared in this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. And now, here's your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com. Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today. Hi, welcome back to Therapy Chat. I'm your host, Laura Reagan, and today we're going to have another interesting discussion with someone whom I admire very much, someone I consider to be definitely a teacher and a mentor to me, a person who's taught me many things about clinical work with survivors of trauma. Today's guest is Lisa Ferentz. Lisa is a recognized expert in the strengths-based, depathologized treatment of trauma. She's been in private practice for 32 years. She presents workshops and keynote addresses nationally and internationally, and she's a clinical consultant to practitioners and mental health agencies in the U.S., Canada, and the U.K. She's been an adjunct faculty member at the University of Maryland School of Social Work, the University of Maryland Department of Family Medicine, and is the founder of the Ferentz Institute, which was formerly known as the Institute for Advanced Psychotherapy Training and Education, which is going into its 10th year of providing continuing education to mental health professionals and graduating over 800 clinicians from her two certificate programs in advanced trauma treatment. I am one of them. (laughs) Lisa is the author of three books, Treating Self-Destructive Behaviors and Traumatized Clients, A Clinician's Guide, and Letting Go of Self-Destructive Behaviors, A Workbook of Hope and Healing. Those two books go together. The Clinician's Guide is obviously for therapists, and the workbook is for people who are working on trying to change self-destructive behaviors. And her newest book is called Finding Your Ruby Slippers, Transformative Life Lessons from the Therapist Couch. Lisa is so knowledgeable and I love talking to her. Today we're going to talk about her book, Finding Your Ruby Slippers, and the concept of connecting with your inner wisdom. Let's just dive right into my conversation with Lisa Ferentz. Hi, welcome back to Therapy Chat. 
I'm your host, Laura Reagan, and today I'm deeply honored to have a very special person returning for a second interview. I'm here with Lisa Ference today. Lisa, thank you so much for coming back to Therapy Chat. My pleasure to be with you. Yes, the really the pleasure's all mine. I I wanted you to come back to Therapy Chat because of course as you know, I love your work and I recommend you to everyone. But right now you have something special. You have a new book coming out or it's out now, right? It's out. Yes, about a month. Yep. So, tell us about your new book and why you chose the title that you did. Let's just start with that. Sure. So the book is called Finding Your Ruby Slippers, Transformative Life Lessons from the Therapist Couch. And as you could probably guess, the title is directly inspired by the movie The Wizard of Oz. And, you know, in the movie, Dorothy spends the whole film really trying to find her way back home. And she's convinced that the wizard has the answers. Uh, And of course, when she reaches the Emerald City, she discovers he's just a short guy behind a curtain and he doesn't have any magical powers. And although she's initially quite despondent and upset, Glinda comes down in this moment that I always thought was so beautifully metaphoric. And she basically says to Dorothy, look at your own feet. You've been wearing the ruby slippers all along. And that's always stuck with me, Laura, because I think it is such a great metaphor for this idea of inner wisdom, that we actually spend a lot of our time believing that other people have the answers that we need, you know, for our own healing or personal growth or even to make a a very important life decision. And although I'm all in favor of people getting support and incorporating resources and, you know, nobody should go through life alone, I, I really do have this strong sense, and I know that you do too as a clinician, that people have this remarkable inner wisdom and that they often either don't realize it's there or they minimize it. And so the book, the theme of the book is really reminding people and then encouraging and inviting people to be able to turn inward to find that inner wisdom for, I think, that the real answers that they need in life to be happy, to, to have inner peace, uh, to truly know what's best for them. So that that's what inspired the title. And, and that's really the overarching theme of the book is self-empowerment and knowing that you have that inner wisdom. And I think that we can access that wisdom and work with that wisdom when we can approach it from a place of curiosity and from a place of self-compassion. So those are also kind of themes that are woven into the book as well. Wonderful. Thank you for explaining that. And I love that connection between the ruby slippers and that idea that, you know, it was really, the answers were really within you all along. I I really think that's so powerful. Yep. You know, I do, like you said, I do believe that we all have inner wisdom and we have the strength within us to probably a lot more strength than we give ourselves credit for to heal. At the same time, I'll give you credit that in training with you is where I actually began to believe in my own inner wisdom in a way that I really hadn't felt connected with it before I did your training. So that's the magic of your experiential trainings. (laughs) You know, that means a lot to me because I think you are such a, a phenomenal therapist and person. And I think though it's, it's actually a nice example of how, you know, the wisdom was obviously always there and it's, again, it's perfectly okay and more than okay to 
to let others into our life, you know, teachers, I think that we all, we all hopefully have the privilege of having many teachers in our lives. Sometimes those teachers are other clinicians or mentors. Sometimes those teachers are our clients, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And sometimes, you know, the teachers can be books like the one that I wrote and, and many other people have written that that just kind of give us that guidance and um, enable us to access and, and connect with what's there. I always tell my clients, I never think it's about reinventing who you are. I think it's about reconnecting with who you are. And so, you know, you came into my training and obviously the inner wisdom was already there. Uh, but if it's, a, and I believe this, that if it's a nurturing, safe relationship environment that helps us to be able to feel safe enough and comfortable enough to look inside because I I think it is important to to add that it is an act of vulnerability right to turn Mm -hmm. inwards you know part of why I think people are so externally focused is not necessarily just because they don't realize they have that wisdom but they also use external scenarios and relationships to serve as a distraction, you know, away from themselves. And I think that sadly it's because sometimes people don't trust that if they were to turn inward, what they would find, what they would connect with would be something that is is precious and beautiful and and helpful and, and meaningful. You know, I think a lot of the clients that you and I work with, when they come from trauma or they come from dysfunctional families of origin, uh, they don't they don't trust that turning inward is going to yield something positive. And so they do spend a lot of their lives distracting through chaotic relationships or, you know, crisis driven workplace environments. And so I think that people sometimes need that reassurance that no matter what they've been through and no, and no matter, you know, how much trauma is there, I, I still believe that there's this internal resource that, that is truly wise, truly self-loving and, and really capable of, of insight that is that is genuinely helpful and, and kind. It's there, right? We just sometimes have to convince our clients that it's worth turning inward. Yes, yes. And I do think that now that myself as a clinician, now that I know that it's there in me, I really believe it, I know it, <laughs> I can yeah. I can better help my clients believe it because if I didn't believe it and I'm telling them, <laughs> well, you're right. they're not going to believe it either. <laughs> No, you're right. You know, you're making a great point, actually. And it's it's part of why I have been so dedicated to training clinicians, because I think that we deserve, clinicians deserve to have as much inner peace and confidence and healing as possible so that then we can be, you know, authentically effective and, you know, have credibility, you know, when we talk to clients uh, about what you just said about inviting them to trust that wisdom. We have to be able to trust our own inner wisdom. You know, I, I think mm-hmm. it's a really valuable point that you're making. Yeah. Well, the truth seems to be for most therapists, it seems like we, we do go into this work with some experience from childhood that makes us really good at helping and taking care of people. And, you know, whether regardless of, whether it was a traumatic childhood or one in which the child just had to be very responsible for whatever reason, you know, which we wouldn't normally think of as traumatic, although it can be. I think that that influences a lot of what brings us therapists into becoming therapists. Exactly right. And you know, because, you know, we've talked about this, that it's not a coincidence that we do what we do. Yeah. 
And, and you know, I, I feel like we're destined to do this work, and, and I agree with you. I think it's very connected to our family of origin experiences. Uh, you know that I'm a little bit in the minority. You may be as well, but I'm in the minority in that I, I had a very safe, loving childhood, but I was the oldest of four kids. And so, as you suggested, there was a lot of responsibility that went with that. And so I was able to gain mastery over, you know, certain skills being a good listener, being a good mediator, you know, feeling comfortable kind of giving guidance and suggestions and advice because I was the oldest, you know, and I, I felt very responsible in some ways for the well-being of my my younger siblings. So uh, that wasn't a trauma, but it certainly was a formative life experience that I think gave me those skills and and kind of predetermined this destiny of mine, you know, to do the, the work that I'm doing. So very connected to our earlier experiences in life, for sure. Yeah, so that that theme jumped out at me and in your newest book. Now, I haven't, I'll disclose to everyone who's listening, I haven't finished the book, so I don't have a total picture of what it is. But from what I have started to read, the first thing I noticed was that it was different from your previous two books in that it seems to me more written for a general audience rather than specifically people who've experienced trauma and have self-destructive behaviors. That's right. That's right. So um, the first book really was really for clinicians treating self-destructive behavior. The second book is a workbook and, and that is a, a kind of a self-help book for clients to either use with their therapists or on their own. But you're right to suggest that the theme there is still very connected to the inevitable byproduct of trauma, which often leads people to do self-destructive things as a way to you know, manage their emotions and, and to do um, self-soothing. This book really is a bit of a departure and in some ways between you and me was more fun to write mm. because it's not really uh, just, it's not just about trauma and it's not just about, um, you know, any act of self-harm. It's really written for anyone and everyone. And in fact, you know, when we were designing the cover and I, and I knew I wanted the title to relate to Ruby Slippers, as you can imagine, the image that I kept getting from the graphic designer was a pair of, you know, high-heeled Ruby Slippers. And my concern with that was that I thought that that message would kind of instantly say, this is a book for women, mm-hmm. right? You know, you see, you see a pair of high heel shoes on a cover, and I think it's reasonable that most men would pass that book by. So the reason why we went with the, the Ruby sneakers <laughs> is because I really wanted to make sure that, that the message, you know, whether it was subliminally or more overtly, but I wanted the message to get out there that this is a book for everyone. It's a book for teenagers and adults, for men and for women. And it's a book that anybody can benefit from. I've been really humbled and really thrilled by the feedback. The book's only been out a very short time, but we're getting just really beautiful reviews on Amazon and other places. And what I love is that people are saying, this is a book for everyone, that that no matter where you are in your life, there is a chapter or chapters in here that will speak to you and that will help you to really just continue to move forward in your life. So it's not, it doesn't have to be specific to healing from trauma. I just, you know, the theme of this book is just how to continue to self-actualize and how to continue to strengthen being able to talk to yourself with kindness and, and, you know, not living from a place of guilt or shame, being becoming more mindful of the messages that you give to yourself about yourself. Because I think that's such a 
you know, a pivotal force in, in all of the subsequent emotions and behavioral choices that we make. Um, there are different sections to the book. So the first book talks about overcoming obstacles because they, I think all of us, again, regardless of where we've come from, you know, do get confronted with different obstacles in our lives, whether it's in, within a relationship or within a workplace or within ourselves. And so, you know, there's a focus on looking at those obstacles and learning how to navigate those obstacles in ways that empower you and reminding you that you, it's okay to, to reach out. It's okay to ask for help. In fact, that's a sign of strength rather than a weakness that oftentimes in life we get confronted with what I call brick walls. And, you know, people spend a lot of time trying to move brick walls. And, and I've always believed that, you know, when you try to move a brick wall, all that happens is you get a concussion. You don't move the wall. So it's, it's giving people permission to both recognize what those potential obstacles are in their lives and then understanding that the, that the answer is not to keep expanding energy, sort of futile energy, trying to move, you know, something that you can't fix or change, but, but rather to make a, a different life choice and decide, you know what, that is no longer acceptable to me or I'm going to, I'm going to turn in a different direction. I'm going to, I'm going to walk somewhere else. So it's just helping people kind of navigate those obstacles in, in ways that I think are far more effective. So that's the first part of the book. The second part of the book is about relationships because, you know, most of us are in a variety of relationships. And I think this is very connected to not giving away your power, understanding what you're able to, to do in a relationship and what you're not able to do. And, and I think what we're not able to ever do is fix or change another person. And so, you know, a lot of the chapters kind of impart that message that the only person you ever have the power to change is yourself. And so it's just kind of giving people permission again to step away from wanting to fix or change someone else. There are chapters that do speak to trauma survivors. And one of the messages I've been giving my clients for years, and I'm, I'm sure you've seen this in your work as well, is a lot of trauma survivors think that unless they get an apology from their abuser, that they're not going to be able to heal. Is that something that you confront as a clinician? If you get down to it, they'll say, all I want is for the person to acknowledge what they did and apologize. And of course, that's probably the one thing that most abusers are never going to do. Exactly, exactly. And I think people underestimate the extent to which that actually holds them hostage and really kind of puts a glass ceiling on the extent to which they can heal. And when you think about it, it's like it's a perpetuation of continuing to turn their power over to the abuser. You know, so the idea that I really can't fully heal until my abuser apologizes, that paradigm really gives the abuser once again the power and the control. So that chapter does talk about, you know, helping people to begin to slowly let go of that idea and to realize that it, they don't need an apology or the cooperation uh, or, or anything else, frankly, from an abuser. In, in order for them to continue to move forward in, in their healing journey. Um, so that's a piece of what the relationship section is about. And then the third section is something that I, I do, you know, pretty much every week in my work as a therapist, and I know that you do as well, and that is really trying to empower clients to be more in the present moment. And whether that comes about through 
really understanding what it is that they have to be grateful for in the present, making decisions in their lives from, from the current reality of their life rather than how things used to be or how they think potentially things could be. That's something that I see a lot with um, women in particular who are in very unfulfilling relationships. And what they'll often say to me is, but, you know, he, he used to be so loving and so attentive. And that's why they hang in there, right, because of how it used to be. Or they'll say to me, you know, I just I know that if he could just get his act together, you know, he could be so loving and so attentive. So I'm just going to hang in there because I think he has so much potential. Right. And the reality is, is that in the present, it's not fulfilling and they're suffering tremendously. So that's a chapter a lot of people have told me that really, really speaks to them because it's not something that we're necessarily consciously aware of, but I think an awful lot of people do often make decisions from the past or the future. And so this is really kind of empowering people to look at their present circumstance and, and to find the courage to make decisions, you know, from, from that place, you know, instead of what was or, or what they imagine or hope will be or could be. And then the fourth unit is about growth and change, because obviously that's what therapy is all about. And I think that's what a good self-help should be, book should be about. You know, I want people to read this book and, and say, you know, I learned stuff and I, I feel like I'm beginning to take baby steps in the direction of changing something in my life that's now making me feel either more empowered or, or taking away some of my suffering or um, helping me to recognize some of my strengths that perhaps I wasn't as, as tuned into before. So it's, it's really, it's being willing to, to take those growth steps. And, and for me, one of the more important chapters in, in that unit is a mantra that I've said to my clients, you know, for forever, which is be afraid and do it anyway. Because uh, I'm sure you see this in your work as well, that so many people really operate from the core belief that says, I'm afraid, therefore I can't. Mm-hmm. Right. So this is about, you know, being afraid, first of all, is a normal human emotion. And uh, it's important. There may be very valuable information in that fear. And so I'm not in any way advocating that we minimize or we ignore the fear. We really have to look at the fear. And sometimes it's about just bringing comfort to the fear. Sometimes, you know, the fear is, is saying to us, you know what, I'm not resourced enough or Maybe this is not going to be a safe decision for me. So we definitely want to understand the fear and we, and we want to, you know, make sense out of the fear. And having said all of that, I never believe that fear is something that should then be translated into, therefore, I can't. So that chapter about be afraid and do it anyway, I, I think can be really empowering for, for people to read. And then the last chapter which in some ways for me maybe is the most important, is, is really about how to strengthen and grow and access self-compassion. Because I really believe that self-compassion and curiosity are the antidotes to shame. And you know that so many you know, live their lives from a place of shame. And it, it, it can just so hold them back. Um, and so when we can bring self-compassion and curiosity to you know, our thoughts, our feelings, and the choices that we make in life, I think that completely sets us free. And it really enables us to talk to ourselves in in ways that are much, much kinder. Um, I don't know if this is something that you encounter a lot, but 
But I really think, and this is not just within clients, I think this is really cultural, I think this is almost universal, that people believe that they can be motivated through shame. That if I just bully myself enough, if I yell at myself enough, that'll motivate me, you know, to do the things that I know I need to do for myself. Yeah, that really seems to be something in our culture, at least here in the U.S. and, you know, probably everywhere. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, I have this theory that I think a lot of that has its roots in um, sports for kids when they're very young, mm. that coaches, I mean, will often, you know, very openly belittle a kid on the on the field, you know, yelling at a kid, yelling, you know, what are you doing? Run faster. You know, um, you know, you just dropped the ball. Look what you're doing. And And I think, unfortunately, a lot of parents sit on the sidelines and don't intervene. Um, and so there's a side kind of silent collusion around, okay, I, I accept the idea that my kid's only going to be a better athlete if you, if you shame him, in essence. I mean, that's really what it is. And I just think, and I've you know, seen this in 33 years as a therapist, that I just don't believe that we're ever, ever motivated by shame. I, I think ultimately it holds us back. And so I'm very passionate about trying to make people both aware of how they talk to themselves about themselves to really notice the extent to which they're using shaming, bullying, um, judgment, criticism, perfectionism, you know, what's the extent to which they're using those things in their lives in the hopes that that's going to somehow motivate them. And then to really teach them how to shift that thinking into thinking that is much kinder and gentler and more compassionate because I think that's ultimately what enables us to move forward. I think that if we truly love ourselves, you know, the sky's the limit in terms of the, the healthy risks that we can take and the good choices that we make and um, our threshold for what is and is not acceptable, you know, in relationships and in the workplace. All of that flows from ultimately how we feel about ourselves and how we talk to ourselves about ourselves. So that part of the book to me is really important because I, I want people to, to be more consciously aware of how they talk to themselves and, and what they can do to uh, enhance their, their sense of, of self-love and self-care. I, I love what you're saying. I feel like there is no way to overstate just how crucial self-compassion is and how powerful of a, of a practice it is for really increasing self-love and self-worth. It's incredible. Yeah. And, you know, it, it, we are, I think, still a little bit salmon swimming upstream, as I like to say, because oftentimes people equate, you know, self-love, self-care, self-compassion with being selfish, mm -hmm. you know, and I think that, too, is kind of a cultural norm or just, you know, a mindset. And so I, I, I think it is important that, you know, people like you, people like me do continue to promote this idea that. We're not talking about being selfish, but we are talking about taking the time to be kind to yourself because the more you can do that, the more I think that becomes externalized and the more we're able to do that, you know, for other people and, and to other people in our lives. I really believe that we can only love others ultimately to the extent to which that we love ourselves. I agree with you 100% and I truly believe that if everyone practiced self-compassion, our world would be a totally different place. We wouldn't have war. Uh, you're right. That is the truth. You know, the whole 
the whole empathy quotient would dramatically increase. And, you know, where there's empathy, it means that people are kind to each other and, and people think before they say certain things and they think before they act and they actually take a moment to ask themselves, what impact is what I'm about to say going to have on that person? You know, if we all, if we all took those five seconds to ask that question before we said what we said to our children, to our spouses, to our significant others, to our employees, it would be a different world. You're totally right. Yeah, I'm so glad. And I know you use self-compassion in your work to great benefit to your clients and, and in all the people you teach. I think it's so powerful. I'm, I'm really glad you included that in the book. Yeah, yeah, me too. And, and again, that's why I'm saying this is a book for everyone, you know, because we all need that practice. And we all do need to pay attention to how we talk to ourselves about ourselves. I, I even though I know this is, you know, a, a, a big statement to make, I really think there's nothing more important than the way we talk to ourselves about ourselves. I think it impacts every facet of our lives. And that tape, uh, you know, is so rooted in family of origin experiences. I know that you, you are a real expert in that and that you really understand that in the work that you do with your clients, that so much of what we see as clinicians has its roots in, in their family of origin experiences. And I think that the way we talk to ourselves, you know, is literally mirroring that, that original tape that we got, which was rooted in how our caretakers spoke to us, the messages that they gave us about who we are and how we should feel about ourselves and what we can expect from the world and how we can expect or should expect other people to treat us. You know, all of that is a part of that tape. And, you know, it's, it's given to us in, in the most formative part of our development. And as you know, we don't question that tape when, when it's given to us by people that we love and trust. And so even if 90% of the messages on that tape, you know, are dysfunctional or toxic or inaccurate um, or, you know, just filtered through our, the parents' trauma or limitations, the truth is that most people really do not evaluate those messages or reevaluate those messages until they're in a therapist's office. Exactly, because those messages are being taken in by a child's brain so young, three, four, you know, and earlier, that isn't capable of that kind of critical analysis of the information and saying, oh, she says I'm bad, but I know I'm not really bad. Exactly. <laughs> Developmentally, that's impossible. And then it just kind of sticks there. And we, when we look back, you know, I think with a lot of self-reflection and probably what can be done through the processes in this book that we could say, oh, you know, that's not, that's not even my thought. That's something that I was told by someone else. Exactly. I'm really, I love that you use the, the term self-reflection because one of the major parts of the book that we haven't, oh, there's my dog. Is that okay? That she's <laughs> Sure. She weighed in in the last podcast too, as I recall. She, she wants to be heard. Yeah. She's got a lot of wisdom, that dog, let me tell you. But I love that you use the term self-reflection because one of the facets of the book that we've not yet touched upon is the fact that with every chapter, there are journaling prompts. There are about six questions that, that the reader gets at the end of each question. And there's actually space within the book itself. It is a sort of a, a combination book and journal sort of diary for people so that they can actually be writing in the book. And those questions are very intentionally designed 
to create self-reflection and, and to invite that inward focus that I alluded to earlier. And you touched on one of kind of, I think, the recurring journal questions that runs through the book, and, and that is continuing to invite the reader to notice whose thought is that? You know, where did you learn that? And have you ever reevaluated it? And perhaps most importantly, does that thought continue to serve you well? And when I say serve you well, for me, it's a very simple litmus test. It's does that thought either help your self-esteem or hinder your self-esteem? You know, it kind of gets crystallized down to that. And so every chapter, the reader is invited to, to journal about the chapter, the content of the chapter, but to take that chapter information and really personalize it, you know, really look at how does this relate to me? How does this relate to me? In answering those journaling questions, I think that also kind of moves people forward in their journey, whether it's a journey of healing or it's a journey of increased personal or professional growth or, you know, a journey of enhanced self-actualization or a journey of, of enhanced self-compassion. So um, I, I love journaling. I'm a big fan of journaling. Um, I, find, I find it kind of funny, you know, with the book coming out, I've been doing a lot of, uh, you know, podcasts and interviews on TV and writing articles. And it's really kind of funny. I think you'll appreciate this, that a lot of the younger people who interview me, you know, get very excited about journaling and they talk about it like it's this brand new treatment, <laughs> you know, phenomenon, <laughs> brand new paradigm. And you know, I've been in the field for 33 years and I always say, you know, journaling was one of the very first things three, 33 years ago, you know, that we had to give people, you know, to encourage them to feel a sense of continuity in between the therapy sessions or to strengthen their, their self insight and, and their awareness. And so certainly journaling is not anything new. It's <laughs> kind of cute though. There's a lot of stuff on YouTube now, you know, about bullet journaling and, and all different, you know, variations of how one can journal. And I mean, I think that's great because I love that there's a whole new generation, you know, of young people who are discovering really the power of journaling and the value of journaling. So this is not anything new by, by any means, but I love that in some ways it's kind of being reintroduced, not only in the mental health field, but again, just to the general population. And I think that's part of why uh, this book, Finding Your Ruby Slippers, you know, resonates for people because people like to journal again and I, and I'm thrilled that they do and I think that this book will really speak to them you know around around that strategy yeah and you know I think for those of us who don't find journaling to be a new idea there can be some association with a, oh you know yeah I used to write in my diary when I was 13 but that's like really dumb and you know um but once we actually start journaling with some prompts, it can be so powerful and really move the emotional process in a direction past what the loop in your head was doing before you started writing, you know? Great. A great way to say it. I think you're totally right. And, and I, I, I agree completely that when you are given a, a specific prompt, you know, meaning a specific question, what that helps to do is it focuses your thoughts. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I think when our thoughts are more focused, when we write, I think the writing can be, you know, we can go deeper, first of all, but I think it's also, 
it's more productive. You know, we can, we can, we can get more out of it. And what I say in the very beginning of the book is you don't have to do this book in any particular order. Uh, each one of these little chapters and they're very, you know, I keep using the word chapters, but they're literally three pages each. And, and it's just, I, I made that decision very consciously. I, you know me, I could have written 50 pages about every topic, <laughs> <laughs> but I very intentionally decided not to do that because what I wanted to do was just kind of put out little little ideas that I think are words of encouragement, you know, perhaps hopefully words of wisdom, just kind of get you thinking a little bit about it, but then really kind of invite you to take that inward focus and to go to those specific questions and, and kind of take it wherever you then want to take it. And what I say in the preface of the book is you can either just write in short answers, you know, inside the book itself, or what some of my clients have been doing is they've actually purchased a separate journal or notebook and, you know, they're writing for pages and pages. You know, one of one of the journal prompts, you know, takes them uh, down a road where they'll, they'll write for five or ten pages. So there's no wrong way to do it. It's whatever resonates for each reader. And, and again, there's no specific order in which you have to read the book. What I tell people to do is go to the table of contents each day. And just kind of notice what statement calls to you on any given day and just focus on that, you know, and, and kind of make that a practice in your life just to choose one idea and, and sit with it and, and really let it, you know, let it kind of germinate and, and then settle. And it's a book that you could read in a day, truthfully, because it's it's written in layman's terms. It's a very easy read. I'm told that the voice is very encouraging and compassionate and that's how I always try to write. But I actually say to people, you know, don't read it in one day, like really savor it, really take your time with it and, and go to the sections that, that speak to you and know that at any given time in your life, different sections will speak to you. And at any given time in, of your life, the same section could speak to you differently. You know, so I, I'm, I'm hoping that it's a resource that people can continue to return to. That's fantastic. I'm planning on buying like six copies so I can <laughs> loan them to my clients, use them myself and so good. on and so on. Let yeah. all my family members do it. <laughs> good, good. And I do think, you know, even though this is, you know, a self-help book and it is definitely designed for the general population, uh, it, it is something that I know a lot of my colleagues who are therapists have incorporated into, you know, the therapy sessions. And so, you you know, I know that I'm I'm assuming a lot of your listeners are, in fact, therapists. And so I think it's it's useful just to put out there that those questions that are woven into the book as journaling prompts certainly can also be a roadmap for clinicians where they can be asking those questions, you know, verbally and then using those questions as as um, a starting off point for a conversation in, in a session, you know. So I, I, I think that it certainly has that application as well. Wonderful. Can you say one little bit about journaling? Just I know you are very well versed in neuroscience and you could probably talk about how journaling helps with processing and mm -hmm. would you take a moment to just talk about that real quick before sure. we finish? And I have a feeling you're probably an expert in that too. <laughs> By the fact that you asked the question, <laughs> you know, that you understand that, you know, in, in the world of therapy now, and I, I don't even, I want to say, I don't even think this is exclusive to trauma 
therapy anymore. I'm hoping that this is kind of, there's a universality to this mm-hmm. in the world of therapy in general. What we continue to learn and what continues to get reinforced through things like neuroscience and functional MRIs and PET scans is that the more we can be integrating both the left and the right hemispheres of the brain, you know, both in therapy and outside of therapy, the more deeply our clients can process their memories, their emotions, their thoughts, and the more deeply they can install the resourcing that we're giving them. And so we want to always, I think, be thinking as clinicians about what am I bringing into therapy and what am I giving the client to do as homework that can achieve that idea of left and right hemisphere activity. And so when we're writing, you know, we're accessing a certain part of the brain. When I have my clients read their journal entries out loud, we're actually bringing in a different part of the brain. Um, When they're visually reading what they've written, um, we're accessing something else. And so, um, and, and I'll even add this piece that sometimes I encourage my clients in addition to journaling to add drawings, you know, whether it's doodling or a particular image that really kind of accentuates what they've just journaled about. So when we do those things, and and I'm going to even add another layer, and that is as they journal, I will often invite them to pause and to notice what they feel in their bodies, you know, Um, just notice the sensations, kind of do a quick body scan, you know, given what you've just written, given what you've just reread or read out loud. So when we bring in all those different pieces, the writings, the speaking, going to the body, we are really turning on all the different parts of the brain that we know are creating the greatest degree of, of integration and processing and insight um, and compassion. We know that you know compassion is, is in the insula, it's in the prefrontal cortex. And so we, when we get people to think and to write and to journal, we're, we're putting them in the prefrontal cortex, we're putting them in the reasoning part of their brain. So not only is that going to help with affect regulation so that they don't get flooded or overwhelmed, it's also going to activate empathy and and compassion and self-compassion. So it is very important that our clients are not just stuck or living in limbic system when they're where they're in that perpetual state of fight, flight, freeze and just doing survival. We want them to be in the parts of their brain that require more thought, higher reasoning, cause and effect, analysis. And journaling will do that. Journaling will light up that part of the brain. And I think that um, that helps our clients both with affect regulation and also, as I say, to strengthen insight and empathy. Yes, yes. Thank you for explaining that. And it seems just related to what we were talking about before, that when you have uh, an inner voice, an inner critic that's based on when you were four years old, accessing those higher brain functions can really show you that that's, that's a child's way of thinking, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that a lot. I think that's a great, great point, Laura. I think, you know, one of the chapters in the book really talks about helping people to discern between then versus now, mm-hmm. past versus the present. You know that so many folks, particularly if they have been traumatized, it's almost like they're frozen in the past. So I love what you just said. I, I think it's really wise that, you know, when, when people can, can do the journaling and, and can reason and think and gain, glean insight from the more adult and mature part of themselves, that's another great way to help them kind of strengthen the idea that it's not then, it is now. And in the now, 
they have more choice. They have more control. They, they can make choices. They're not trapped. They don't have to be frozen. So I, I love that idea, you know, what you're suggesting. It's a, it's a, it's a great reinforcement for people that, that reminds them that, that they're safer, right? That, that, that there's, they're empowered and they're safer and they're adult and, and they can look at themselves and life through a different lens. Yes, that's so beautiful. Lisa, I am so happy that you have this book out now to really help an even broader range of people than you have in your previous work. I, I am so excited for you, and I think this is going to be huge. I just can't wait to see what happens. Thank you. And I, I'm so grateful to you that you're willing to talk about it and, and bring it to your audience. And, you know, m- my thing at this stage of my life is, is to reach and teach as many people as I can. And, um, and I, you are doing the exact same thing, Laura, it, both as a therapist and, and in this phenomenal podcast that you've been doing for a while now. So, you know, you and I are, are very much on the same path. And I think that we, we have the same passion and we do want to reach and teach as many people as, as we can. So I do, I do have a lot of faith in this book and I, 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 you know, I, as I said, the feedback has been just so humbling and so beautiful. So is it okay to let people know where they can get yes, the book? Yes, please, please. We've, uh, increase their curiosity about it. So um, certainly they can get all my books on Amazon. And I know in some ways that's the absolute easiest place to get it. Um, but I also want to just let people know about my website because there are, in addition to the books, there's a lot of other free resources there. Um, and the, the website is theferrensinstitute.com. And um, they can also access a lot of free resources on the Facebook page, which is the Ferenc Institute. Um, or on LinkedIn. But I do encourage people to visit the Facebook page because there's all my blogs are there, my radio shows are archived there, and we do uh, try to put out a lot of articles and videos and, and just free resources for people so that they can, you know, continue to, to grow and, and to heal. Thank you. And I'll put a link to your website in the show notes for this episode. And um, any therapists who are listening, Lisa didn't say it, but on her website, you will find the best trainings for trauma that I've seen. So I'm recommending them all the time to everyone. And, you know, you're, you're creating a real army of therapists who are skilled in trauma. That is what we need in this world today. Thank you. I, I, you are, you are one of those people. <laughs> yeah, I, I am thrilled about that. And, and I appreciate your mentioning the Institute in Baltimore. We're just getting ready next week. We start our spring semester and we start the trauma certificate programs again. And I think this is my 22nd time teaching the, the trauma program. And it, it, it's so funny. It never gets old. I am excited about it every time I bring something new to it every time. And, um, I love the fact that there are more and more people like you out there doing the work in the way that you're doing it, because that's what I think is really, you know, making a difference in the world. So thank you again for everything that you do to help your clients. Thank you, Lisa. And thanks for being on Therapy Chat today. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to my interview with Lisa Ferentz. I hope you enjoyed our discussion. I thought it was really interesting what she explained about how journaling is a right brain method for expressing and processing emotion and 
about connecting with our inner wisdom. That's a really fundamental concept that has made a huge difference for me and my life, understanding that we do have within us everything we need. And sometimes we just need a little help accessing it. I really recommend you check out Lisa's book, Finding Your Ruby Slippers. I have bought a few copies and recommended it to many people. Everyone has given me wonderful feedback on how helpful it was. So it's not just for people who've experienced trauma. It's for anyone who wants to work on personal growth and self-reflection. So thanks again for listening to Therapy Chat. I always appreciate you. Feel free to visit my website, therapychatpodcast.com and leave me a message giving me some feedback about the podcast. Just click on the button that says speak pipe. I love hearing from you. And don't forget about the Therapy Chat app if you'd like a way to easily organize all episodes and share. The Therapy Chat app is free and it's on the iTunes store. Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com. Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today. Thank you for listening to Therapy Chat with your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. For more information, please visit therapychatpodcast.com.